Lundit Lopate at Large. I'm Lundit Lopate. Rachel Lee Gross opens her new book by noting that, quote, there comes a time in every woman's life when her body bumps up against the limits of human knowledge. And she looks into the huge disparity between our understanding of the male and the female anatomy in her book, which is called Vagina Obscura and the Anatomical Voyage. It's published by W.W. W. Norton, and it brings Ms. Gross, an award-winning science journalist, to our show now. Welcome. Hi, Leonard. Thanks so much for having me. You say in every woman's life? <laughs> um, and maybe I could have put it as every person's life. Uh-huh. Uh, but in this book, I talk to mostly people who have the anatomy that I'm talking about. And I kept noticing this pattern over and over again um, of having a physical, biological condition with their genitals and reproductive parts and either being dismissed, not believed, or basically told that their body was a black box or a mystery. You argue that in medicine, the male anatomy has been used as a standard to understand all bodies, even by the many thousands of gynecologists who are in practice throughout the world? Um, I go back to Hippocrates and 16th century anatomists to kind of show how the male body, the white male body, uh, became the standard and ideal for medicine as a whole. I don't say that gynecologists focus on that anatomy. They're pretty much the specialty that focuses specifically on female anatomy. And uh, the uh, the Greeks uh, had uh, did some interesting things. For example, the word hysteria is uh, is uh, derived from the Greek hystero, a womb. Estrogen right. derives from a Latin adaptation of a Greek word called that was gadfly. Um, so hysteria has a tricky history because I think some people. Um, are a little bit confused by the associations. I've heard people say to me that the word hysterectomy feels sexist because it has the word hysteria in it. And actually it's a little different than that. Um, Like you said, there was hysteria in ancient Greece, this idea of the wandering womb specifically, Um, but the word just means uterus. So a hysterectomy is just the removal of a uterus, um, which can be problematic for many other reasons. Uh, But yes, in ancient Greece, there was this idea that the uterus, uh, when it got upset, it would wander the body in search of sex and motherhood and moisture. And this could cause cause all sorts of problems in a woman's body. Um, It could make her faint or have nausea or basically just have these symptoms that were unexplainable. And so the goal was to put the uterus back in its place. Um, Now, of course, we know the uterus does not move around the body, uh, but the idea of hysteria did nevertheless kind of live on throughout the ages. Didn't the uh, ancient Greeks also say the vagina was merely a penis turned inside out and that the ovaries were simply interior testicles? Yeah, How that was they the come basic up with idea. that idea. <laughs> I, great question. I mean, I think it goes back to if you consider the male the ideal and standard form, then the female is just kind of a inferior shadow of that. If you're the ancient Greeks, um, kind of the stick figure drawing of the male. And one way they pictured this was having the genitals turned inside out or made interior. Uh, 
And it even manifested in drawings that anatomists did like firsthand in the 16th century where they say this is the uterus and it's quite clearly a penis with testicles, which are called the ovaries. Wow. You point out that identity, chromosomes, genitalia, gonads, and hormones rarely form a neat line. Yeah. So I wanted to bring attention to the fact that, you know, I think for convenience sake and cultural reasons, science has tended to slot different types of bodies into one of two boxes, male and female. Um, And those terms sound kind of scientific, more than woman and man maybe, but the more that I dug into it, the more I found that that was totally inadequate to describe many of the people I was talking to and the people that these researchers were studying. That sex Um, and gender aren't binary? (laughs) Right, and of course, I think the conversation is really growing about this concept culturally, but. I was talking to biologists and doctors who were investigating this on a scientific level. Um, So for one, consider how incredibly shared anatomy is across all bodies. At six weeks old, a fetus looks identical, whether it's gonna end up considered male or female. Um, It has just this little nub between its legs called the genital tubercle that could become a penis or clitoris. And it has two sets of plumbing inside it, the kind of proto ovaries and fallopian tubes, and then the proto-testes and sperm ducts. And it's really like bursting with this potential. And it's only later on that the body sort of embroiders on whichever pathway is going to happen. And even then, you have so many homologous parallels. So the clitoris is exactly akin to the penis anatomically. So the part you can see and touch is really like the head of the penis. And there's also a shaft that goes back into the body and two very large um, kind of tulip-shaped bulbs that encircle the vagina. And there are two arms that flare back into the pelvis and they're made up of the exact same erectile tissues that the penis is. How much do you attribute the problems to the fact that science has often excluded women from its ranks, uh, which probably uh, is a reason that uh, some of these questions haven't been asked. Yeah, it's it's significant. And it's obviously not just women. It's women of color. It's LGBT researchers. Um, but this was a theme that came up again and again. Scientists kept telling me, you only see what you expect to see and you don't see what you don't expect to see. And historically, a lot of these male scientists coming in expected to see things like an interior uh uterus and interior testicles. They literally called the ovaries female testicles until the 1600s. Um, And they expected to see like, okay, the female body is mainly for reproduction. That's what the uterus is for. So that's what we're going to focus on. And when you had different sorts of people entering the field, they brought with them their own questions of what they were interested in, what was relevant to them and their bodies. And together they started piecing together this tapestry, which until then had been uh, much narrower, I guess, threadbare. Is it true that it was only about 30 years ago, in in 1993, uh, after it was pressured by the women's health movement that the federal government required researchers to include women and minorities in clinical research? Oh, yeah. So that, again, reflects this historic idea of the male body, the white male body, being ideal and standard. And there were also all of these 
um, it ended up being unfounded concerns that menstruation would skew the data and that female bodies were too unruly to be included in the data set. So women's bodies have been seen as an enigma to scientists, to physicians and psychiatrists over the years. Has it gotten any better over the past 30 years when uh, the rules were changed? I don't. I think that was a really important move, and it came out of kind of um, the AIDS crisis and the women's health movement. Um, but I don't think it changed the structure of how science is done, and that goes back to what I'm saying about who's asking the questions, how we structure the problems, and what the priorities are. Um, so, yeah, it definitely resulted in better data for things like important drugs or how we treat heart attacks because that needs to apply to all people and not just be good for white men. Um, but the actual foundations of science are still, still have some of these biases encoded in them. And in my book, I do look at several kind of trailblazers who are trying to change their own fields. You wrote a column about unsung women who shaped science and the history of science, but uh, I looked it up. Only 19 women have won a Nobel Prize in one of the sciences, and the name that comes up a couple of times is Curie. Mm. Yeah, and that's a huge problem, and that goes beyond, you know, there's first this discrepancy in the numbers of women and just non-men in science, but then the Nobel Prize itself, it's like, how is that set up? Who's making the decisions? Who decides what is a, a discovery of world importance and which investigator on the team gets the credit? That kind of thing. And did they decide it too late after the person has passed away? Um, so there's so many politics involved. It's not just some like objective measure of who's the best scientist. And in the case of Marie Curie, uh, she was married to somebody of significance. Sure, but her research was incredible, and I think there's a reason why her name is so well-known. The problem is that so many others are not. What did Sigmund Freud get wrong about the function of, of women's body parts? Pretty much everything, I would say. Um, as revolutionary as he was in psychoanalysis, he was not trained as a doctor, definitely not a gynecologist, and yet a lot of his theories had a lot of influence on medicine. Um, so perhaps the most infamous is he was basically the person who had the idea that there was something called a vaginal orgasm and something called a clitoral orgasm. And maybe more importantly, he said the vaginal orgasm was the good one that a mature and well-adjusted woman was supposed to have. And so at some point in female development, he theorized, um, a girl has to transfer her orgasm from her clitoris <laughs> to her vagina. And this was later found to be biologically impossible. Um, there was no real difference between these types of orgasm. It all goes back to the clitoris anatomically, spoiler. But this idea made millions of women feel inadequate <laughs> um, and really harmed them psychologically. And I would say these myths continue to persist. Um, so that's something huge he got wrong. Because they, uh, not everyone has found it uh, easy to have an orgasm every time. 
So they were wondering what they were doing wrong or whether there's something wrong with their vaginas? Uh, well, very few women orgasm from penetrative sex yes. alone, if that's what you mean. Well, well, the clitoris is rubbed during penetrative sex. Sometimes for some women and not usually in the way that it's that you would want it to happen in order to have an orgasm. That, again, is super rare and really big studies have found that. So um, there's a huge anatomical variation that has to do with where your clitoris is and the different sizes and shapes of your genitals. Um, and so, again, the idea of the vaginal orgasm really says that women should be experiencing pleasure during heterosex with their husbands. And it's no coincidence that this is the kind of sex that results in babies. Mm -hmm. And Freud was coming up with these theories in a time when Europe was trying to replenish uh, the people that had died during World War I. And it was this kind of era of pronatalism where you were pressuring women to have more babies and replenish the nation. So there was a lot baked into this idea. And yes, um, to the second part of your question, women were feeling like there was something wrong with their bodies and their vaginas. And because the clitoris is the center of female pleasure, um, and that's physically what was happening for all these people, um, they felt that they were immature or infantile because that's what Freud told them was the case if they were having clitoral orgasms. Now, Darwin is another key figure in the history of science and uh, looking at uh, humans. What about him? Did he get a lot of things wrong as well? He did. I don't want to say, like, I'm not trying to knock down these great men of science. I mean, maybe Freud. Um, well, they, I, they only knew what was available at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and they were products of their eras and their cultures. However, I think we also have to hold them accountable for, um, for reaffirming the politics and the culture of their time. So Darwin was, you know, um, he was a European elite gentleman scientist, uh, and he had certain restrictions on what he could say and couldn't say. So he actually rarely talked about genitalia, um, which I kind of did an investigation into that in my book, but he definitely repeated again and again that he believed that males of every species, human and non-human, were the more intelligent, dynamic, brave, strong members of the species. And he literally has quotes that say, like, in every way, the male is superior. Hmm. Um, and even though he was an incredible scientist who brought together all these different observations from different fields to come up with his theory of evolution, uh, that was not based in his science. And it really correlates strongly with the Victorian stereotypes of the time. Um, and maybe it helps to recognize that Darwin himself was fairly conservative politically in that he did not believe in birth control, was not a huge fan of women's suffrage. Um, so he was actually kind of a past era, even than his own era. Another name that pops up is J. Marion Sim Sims. Is, is yeah. he part of the, the same discussion? He is central to the discussion of the book, which is the origins of how we think about um, female bodies, vaginas, and um, just how women should uh, 
be and what their bodies are for. So um, I don't think I'd call him a great man of science. Um, he was a Southern slaveholding gynecologist who is credited with developing the speculum, um, an important tool for kind of visualizing um, inside the vagina. But he did his experiments on um, enslaved women of color uh, with no anesthesia, which wasn't really around at the time. And there's no real consent um, that we can be, that we can see here because these were people who are considered property. Um, so there's been a huge backlash and critique of his work. He used to have statues erected to him all over the country and buildings named after him. And now I think there's a critical reappraisal of the ethics of what he did. And there's also a really important movement to uplift um, the people that he did these experiments on. So Lucy and Arca and Betsy are the ones whose names we know. There's probably dozens more, but um, a historian named Deirdre Owen Cooper, Cooper um, has some incredible research that she has dug up on how much these women ended up knowing about obstetrical conditions like fistula, which is like a an abnormal opening that can form between the vagina and the bladder. Um, and she basically argues convincingly that they served as surgical assistants who ended up knowing more about this condition than most, probably any doctor at the time. And they may have gone back and helped their community. So this is the kind of like rewriting of medical history that's happening now. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Rachel E. Gross, who's written a book called Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. It is published by W.W. W. Norton. Um, let's talk a bit about your book's title, Vagina Obscura. Now, a camera obscura reflects the world back through a narrow lens that's dimmer and inverted. How does that apply to the topic of your book? Right. I think that um, the argument there is that the camera obscura was a really important development, right? It did something. It did reflect back an image of reality. Um, through a certain lens in a way that was limited, in a way that blocked out other details. And to me, that is what anatomists of the past have done with the female body. I'm not saying that they didn't uncover real facts and learn about these organs, but they did it through their own limited framework that was shaped by the culture and the era they were in, like Darwin and Freud. Um, and so there was so much more to see outside of that lens. So I sort of think of like portrait mode on your camera, um, where you're zooming in and getting beautiful detail uh, on what you are interested in, but you're blurring out the background. And this book is my attempt to bring that background into focus. Were you worried that the title might seem a bit provocative? Isn't there a, a stigma about talking about vaginas in public? Yeah, and that's part of the problem. We um, had to think about about uh, whether we wanted to do this show or not. Just uh, oh, really? because, well, I'm, I'm always afraid that somebody's going to object. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I was I was actually um, on a podcast think at KERA yesterday where they kept repeating, if you have kids in the room that oh. you don't want to hear this, then go put them on an iPad in the other room. And they kept repeating that. And I was like, 
why why would they not want to hear this we're not using curse words we're Mm not um you know i nothing obscene about this yeah so i think this is what we need to interrogate because it's because again if we look at science as like part of the culture um that it's in and produced by that culture that culture here is squeamishness and prudery and considering women's bodies shameful or wrong. And that affects the science at every level, from what gets funded to what's considered important to what you're allowed to talk about at scientific meetings or in studies. And I talked to so many scientists whose work had been just stymied at every level by the sense that what they did was obscene, even though they were doing medically important, biologically important things. Uh, so yes, it's a little provocative, and I really love the idea of people uh, being on the train, having this book up. Um, I know my mom loves to give it to all her retired neighbors, like <laughs> run across the street and just like shove it in their face. Um, so the idea is to get a conversation started. I think I hope that people who don't find it in any way provocative are reading it, and I hope that those who are a little bit like ooh, I don't know about this, we'll also open it. Well, you point out that the book isn't only about the vagina. And wasn't an earlier title Lady Anatomy? Yeah, um, that actually was sort of a reference to um, a female anatomist in Italy in, I think, the 1800s. And she was kind of known as the Lady Anatomist. And she was... she was very provocative for her time. She actually focused on the male genitals as well as the eyeball. Um, But she was kind of became seen as an authority in a time when there were not many female scientists in her position. Um, so I like that. And I like the kind of play between the anatomy of ladies, like tongue in cheek, um, and this historical figure. But as I researched the book, I just realized that this book went so far beyond uh, what we might consider women or ladies in this case. Um, it was really about everyone who had this anatomy. And that includes intersex people, non-binary people, trans people. I talked to trans men who had endometriosis. Um, mm. So it just didn't that fit seems, anymore. seems really surprising to me. But you write that when you were suffering from bacterial vaginosis a few years ago, you realized that you knew very little about your own body, particularly your reproductive organs. And that's despite having been the digital science editor for Smithsonian Magazine uh, in... Uh, where you'd written about reproductive health, reproductive biology, and animal sex. Right. And my mom's a doctor, and I went to Berkeley, and I took Femsex, the female sexuality course. And I was like, I've got this. Um, I was wrong. I. He told you to shove rat poison up your vagina? I mean, that's not her words. There wasn't shoving in there. But yeah, so I was recommended um, to take boric acid um, to fix this recurrent infection, which one in third, one in three women before menopause get. So it's incredibly common. Um, and antibiotics usually don't work. Often the infection comes back. So I'd already tried that. And my gynecologist basically said, well, there's a last resort. It's called boric acid. And since you're going to look it up on the Internet anyways, you're going to see that it's rat poison. Um, And that's what I did. And you say that uh, bacterial vaginosis is a common condition that one in three women, American women, have had at some point. And yet you'd never heard of it. And your your gynecologist didn't have many ways to treat it. 
Exactly. That was what I was realizing during that experience. So first I was kind of trusting my doctor because, you know, I, I did trust medicine to some extent. I really respect it. And again, my mom's a doctor and I really liked my gynecologist and thought she had my best interest in mind, which she did. Um, but the fact is that the field just didn't have good solutions to all manner of incredibly common conditions, partially because of that stigma and squeamishness that we've been talking about, and also a lack of prioritizing female sexual health. You mentioned that your mother is a medical doctor. Your father is a theoretical physicist. Your stepmother's a molecular geneticist. What yes. did they tell you about the roles of women in science when you were growing up or when you started thinking about writing about these things? <laughs> I'm trying to think of what they'd be okay having on the radio. Um, no, I think I got a version of kind of an Our Bodies Ourselves for mm. girls growing up. And it was useful, but it focused a lot on, uh, well, where you're going to grow hair and getting your period and puberty and like the ovulation cycle, which I never understood. Um, so, so yeah, so my parents did the silent thing and handed me the book, basically. Um, and I got this impression that... I had to like avoid getting pregnant, try to avoid STDs. And at some point I'd start bleeding and it was going to be scary. And I didn't know when it was going to happen. Uh, so I wouldn't say I had like a super great introduction to all the cool stuff my body can do. But when you started writing the book, you note that you didn't know where to start because research has focused mostly on fertility and excluded the many other health issues that women face. That's right. I was, you know, as a Is science Is that journalist, where Patty Brennan comes into the story to some degree? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Um, she she does focus on reproduction, um, specifically as it pertains to sexual evolution. Um, so Patty Brennan is an animal researcher, um, one of the very few in this book, and she does study vaginas, but usually those that belong to ducks and dolphins and whales and snakes even. Um, but for that chapter, which was about the vagina, I found that all these basic questions I had about human vaginas were just not being asked and I could not find the answers to them in the literature. And stuff as basic as what's kind of the natural variation of vaginal shapes um, or how does the vagina change during and after childbirth or during menopause. So like I found this um, retired anatomy teacher who had tried to figure out what the normal shapes of vaginas are. And she'd actually used dental latex um, on willing participants uh, who had this put in their vaginas and it created a mold like a popsicle and then took it out. And she found there's actually a huge variation in different populations. She had like five categories of different shapes. One was unfortunately called the slug shape, um, but she was essentially like laughed off her campus and she couldn't get funding and her university wouldn't like publish her findings in their newsletter because it just wasn't considered important or appropriate, even though it could be important for like medication delivery, IUDs, any sort of cream that you're putting up there or surgical procedures. Um, so that's actually why I ended up going to Patty and looking at other species where some really interesting work was being done. I spoke recently with Franz Zabal, who talked about mm -hmm. how much of the things that we're discussing um, were misinterpreted because uh, we just looked at how apes were built and how apes acted uh, and, and just uh, extended that to human behavior. Right. And I mean, he would know more than most people about that. Um, 
he actually does come up in in my vagina chapter funnily yeah. enough um i'm not surprised <laughs> yeah he's, he's written on vagina and clitoris a few times actually um in apes um naturally so and the fact that in some apes the clitoris is is so huge that people some scientists thought that uh those those females were males Exactly. So bonobos are super interesting when it comes to kind of comparisons to humans, even though, you know, you always want to do that with a grain of salt. Um, but there was a, um, an evolutionary biologist I was talking to um, who's really interesting, Joan Roughgarden. She's a trans woman, and she wrote a book called Evolution's Rainbow. Um, and she makes this great point that genitals are not just for reproduction, even though that's what we think of them as for. So they're being used in all forms of sexual behavior and bonding and like different forms of important social behaviors that animals do. So bonobos is a great example. They have much more lesbian sex than heterosexual sex. And a lot of that, most all of it, involves their very large, well-developed clitorises. And she notes that these apes are often used as a comparison to us because they're so genetically similar. So are chimps, but this is another one. Well, and the chimps are more, the males are more aggressive and the bonobos, the females are more dominant. Yeah, and there's a lot they're of- both very close to us genetically. We share, uh, I don't know, something like 98% of our DNA with them. Exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty, pretty different, like socially. Um, so it's not like either one is the perfect one, but she made the point of looking at clitoral development and how it was, it seemed to be kind of specifically developed for like female, female sex. And um, Frondeval also pointed that out. And so did another really important primatologist. So why haven't we asked about the development of clitorises in other animals, even humans um, being not for penetrative sex, which Really, it doesn't get much action during. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoy my conversation with Rachel E. Gross. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Vagina Obscura, An Anatomical Voyage. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And we return to Rachel E. Gross, who's an award-winning science journalist. Uh, her book, the one we are discussing is Vagina Obscura, an anatomical voyage published by W.W. W. Norton. Um, you mentioned endometriosis earlier and how historically it's been seen as a disease that affects career-minded neurotic white women who aren't having children. Uh, we were blaming the victim for having endometriosis. 
<laughs> right. And that's almost a direct quote, I believe, from an endocrinological endocrinology textbook. Wow. Um, I think the point I was making there is not just blaming the victim, which absolutely is happening, um, but that this disease was characterized as happening to a very specific demographic of people. And so it actually left out women of color of this disease, non-binary people. So it's much, much more difficult if you don't fall into this, like, very biased. And why? Why did, uh, is the experience different for black and brown women? And for trans men who have endometriosis? I think it's mostly different in how they're treated by the medical system and how long it takes to get diagnosed and the type of treatment that they might be offered. Um, So it was basically visible in white women earlier because they were the ones with the privilege and the access Mm -hmm. um, to get care. And even for them, it totally sucked. Um, But I've now talked to women of color who have been like suggested hysterectomies more often with things like fibroids and endometriosis. Um, So that's a difference I've noticed anecdotally. Um, And it like, it takes much longer to get a diagnosis. So wait, wait. So it's a cure is suggested for endometriosis if if it's a white woman, but uh, a hysterectomy is suggested if the woman is of color? So it's not that simple, but um, most women I talked to for the book, often in the past, it had been suggested that a potential cure for endometriosis was to have a baby. So 30 years ago, um, several women I talked to were recommended like, hey, if you were thinking of having a baby, like now's a good time. Um, and the reason is because it changes your hormone cycles. And endometriosis is a disease in which uh, cells very similar to the lining of the uterus go beyond the pelvis and start growing in places they shouldn't. And it's very hormone dependent. So hormones tell those cells to grow and shed and bleed. Um, so if you have less of those hormones happening, the idea is that the disease won't spread as much. Um, So people were recommended to get pregnant if they could, um, which is a crazy recommendation and has been shown to not work consistently at all. Um, But it was suggested to me um, by someone at the Fibroid Foundation that with women of color, they're more commonly offered something like a hysterectomy, um, especially with fibroids in that case. So the the other women that were told maybe just get pregnant uh, later on, especially near menopausal age, also were suggested to get a hysterectomy. Um, endometriosis is the second um, second largest cause of hysterectomies, I believe. You've devoted a whole chapter to the history of gender affirmation surgery and how it's led to a growing understanding of male and female anatomy. Um, of trans men, trans women, non-binary people, intersex people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to me, uh, these people and some of the surgeons and doctors who treat them are absolutely central to the project of the book, which is how has science envisioned women and how has it prioritized this anatomy? Um, so the uh, surgeons that I spoke to that care for trans women, um, they really had such a different idea of this anatomy than those who came before them. They were thinking of it as um, something that should be like 
beautiful, graceful, aesthetically pleasing, but most importantly, give pleasure to its owner. Whereas the past surgeons um, that did this work were thinking like just uh, just a hole to ejaculate in, which is a quote from the surgeon Marcy Bowers that I talked to. Um, and it just shows this evolution in like what we think of female genitals as being for and what they should be, because there are always really important cultural threads that tell us what our body should be like. And if they're not that, um, that we need to alter them with things like labiaplasty. So these doctors are on the front lines um, of determining like what makes a woman anatomically. Um, and the women that are going through this journey themselves, so um, like the woman I followed through her gender affirmation surgery journey are really thoughtfully thinking about what these body parts mean to them, what they want to get out of this surgery and what, if anything, they have to do with their identity and feeling like a woman. Like, so yeah, it was really important for me to look at that history. And I think it also, the history of that surgery specifically shows a lot of these biases I've been talking about, about um, seeing women initially as being kind of, uh, passive and reproductive and feminine and how that's really, thank God, evolves. Well, you spoke with Marcy Bowers. Uh, did she bring a, a, a very personal perspective to all of this? Because she's the first trans woman to perform gender affirmation surgery, also an innovator who's created sensitive vaginas and vulvas. Yeah. Yeah. She thinks of herself as an artist or sculptor, which actually totally makes sense. Um, so Marcy is super interesting. She does have that distinction. That is her biography. But whenever I asked her about it, she much preferred to talk about her medical experience. So she was a gynecologist for, I think, 10 years, delivered a lot of babies and really like knows the female anatomy incredibly intimately, um, as well as, of course, having been through this process. So she wanted to bring that understanding and what she saw as like the beauty and grace of female anatomy to her work as a gender affirmation surgeon. Uh, she also has this really fascinating perspective on what she does. So she basically says we have all the same parts just configured differently. Um, so that goes back to like how incredibly shared and overlapping male and female anatomy is. Um, and so she knows exactly what she's working with if she's going to do surgery on a penis. Um, she knows where the head or glands, the very like sensitive tip will be and how that will become the glands of the clitoris. She knows exactly where the columns of erectile tissue are um, that she will splay out slightly differently. Um, sorry, I hope this isn't too graphic um, for those who might have this anatomy. Well, if there are children in the room, just ignore <laughs> what she's saying. <laughs> right. Um, so here, the point, the point is that she says it actually makes complete sense to go from like, quote, one to the other, because we're not talking about opposites. We're talking about like, like a, this Venn diagram of shared anatomy that you can move around a little bit and reshape and get the same results. And if you know what you're doing, you can maintain that sensitivity and function, which is absolutely crucial and central to what she does. Each of your chapters addresses a, a different field of science. So 
it's uh, it's uh, not just anatomy, but also bioengineering, microdissection, surgery, and the science of hormones. Now, what about hormones? Um, how, aren't hormones produced in uh, in what? I guess in the uterus that have no that that play an important role in other aspects of women's life. Yeah, um, they're not produced in the uterus, actually, oh. but in the ovaries. The ovaries, uh, oh, sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, fat cells also produce hormones, so there's a lot of different glands that produce hormones. Um, but the ones that I talk about more is are the ovaries. Um, and so all of your egg cells are surrounded by these other kind of a halo or a bubble of other cells called granulosa cells. And they make the estrogen and progesterone um, and testosterone, actually, um, that yeah, are crucial for your entire body. And this was really mind-blowing to me to find out that it's not just like regulating your period and supporting uh, your reproductive system. It's maintaining your bone health and your heart health and your brain health um, and like all this stuff that's super important. And I was like, why why didn't I realize this or put it together? Because I think often we focus so much on those egg cells and on the ovaries as these kind of uh, reproductive clocks uh, that we forget they have another arguably more important function. Is it true that some very basic questions you had about vagina science still haven't been answered? Things as basic as the as range of sizes and shapes of the vagina, how they change as women age, uh, when they hit puberty, when they give birth, when they get older? Yes. Those studies are not easy to find in the gynecological literature. There are people have done ultrasounds on uteruses and how uteruses change a little more, again, because I think we tend to focus on reproduction. But there's been very little attention paid to vagina shape. And I think that the idea might be that it's, you know, it's known as a stretchy tube, muscular, um, but it's like most famous for being able to accommodate stretch and like get a baby out and i think that people just didn't care what happened after that um well i'm assuming that it'll be shaped differently after you've had a child as opposed to if you've never had a child yeah you would assume but we don't have super a lot of research on that um I did find out that it has a lot to do with the pelvic floor muscles because they are supporting the whole vagina, um, which is a muscular tube. So our pelvic floor muscles definitely go through um, immense changes during pregnancy. They get like stretchier and more elastic and there can be um, prolapse or it could be tightening. So that could change the vaginal shape because the vagina doesn't necessarily have that much of a shape of its own when it's just at rest. Um, but I had to go to all these different fields to ask these questions like pelvic floor therapists and people who are doing MRI work, um, as well as gynecologists and obstetricians. So there wasn't any good paper on like hmm. what are the major changes that the vagina and vulva go through after birth. It's amazing that we still don't know so many things. Uh, this is... WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Rachel E. Gross, who's written a book called Vagina Obscura, an, Anatom an Anatomical Voyage, published by W.W. Norton. Um, you, uh, you write about a pair of biologists in Boston who are growing artificial ovaries to counter the health effects of menopause. Right. So... This goes back to how ovaries don't just um, 
make eggs. They also create hormones that support the entire body. And so these biologists um, for almost 20 years now have been producing research that shows that human ovaries um, might not start out with all the eggs they will ever have, which is like the reigning paradigm, uh, but they may actually make new eggs from stem cells. And we still don't know what those new eggs are necessarily doing in the human body. Uh, we haven't figured that out yet, but you know, they could be functioning as eggs. And so they want to take these stem cells and importantly, um, the other the stem cells for the other type of cell I mentioned, the ones that produce hormones, and that's why they're, what they're using to make what what they call an artificial ovary. So, um, tissue that secretes hormones and helps restart this feedback loop between the brain and the ovaries that keeps the hormone cycle going. You also talk with women who were victims of genital cutting and women who'd been born with atypical genitalia and were surgically altered as infants. Yeah, I do. Now, genital um, cutting is a, a cultural thing. Is it still practiced much around the world? Yes, genital cutting is practiced in many countries and many cultures. Um, and in my book, I actually make an effort to give context to what many people think of as like a non-Western tradition or a religious tradition, whereas actually I found that unfortunately female genital cutting was really mainstream and part of medical tradition in Europe and America um, in the 1800s. Wow. So it to, really... To, to do what? To achieve what? To prevent masturbation usually oh. um, or like over-sexualization of women. Um, so there was a British surgeon in the 1800s who was really big on using this as an anti-masturbation uh, 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 technique um, and during this kind of masturbation panic that was happening. And even though he was eventually shut down, his name was Isaac Baker Brown, um, in Europe, his practice spread to America and um, John Harvey Kellogg of the cornflakes brand uh, was really adamant in supporting this. And he also supported putting carbolic acid on the clitoris to stop young girls from masturbating. Ugh. So it's a really um, ugly, horrible history. And it was done to like, it was within white Western culture that this was happening. Um, so I just think that's important when people think about this as some barbaric practice that's so foreign because it's absolutely not. And again, the surgeries on intersex infants um, also have similarities. They're non-consensual. They're performed on infants who don't get to have a say and who often express regret and have severe consequences growing up. I mean, from urinary and sexual dysfunction to just like the great shame and trauma of having this done to them without being asked for and the way that society and their parents treat them. So that was really, really moving for me to find and important for me to include. Um, and to me, the fact that those surgeries were being done across the board for so many years mm. just shows how ingrained this idea of what a woman should be and should look like and what her genitals should look like is in our society that when someone's genitals are perfectly within the range of human variation. They aren't harming anyone. They're probably doing something very good and useful for their owner. 
but we still want to cut them off and reshape them because they make us uncomfortable because they don't look like what we think a woman should look like. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that there's a Darwin had a journal entry that declared that a woman's purpose purpose was to be, quote, a nice, soft wife, an object to be beloved and played with better than a dog. Anyhow. Yeah, that was a young Darwin (laughs) deciding whether it was worth it to get married. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Uh, We don't have a lot of time left, but I, I wanted to talk about some of the, uh, the stories you share of a largely forgotten, of largely forgotten researchers like, like uh, Miriam Mencken, a lab technician who showed in 1944 that in, vit- that in vitro fertilization is possible. Why has her contribution been erased since it's still practiced? Right. Um, yeah, Miriam Mencken was I was just obsessed with her story. She worked for John Rock, who helped develop the birth control pill and is incredibly famous. Um, But no one had heard of her name. I certainly had not until I stumbled across her archives um, at the Countway Center for the History of Medicine at Harvard. And so she was this like brilliant, tenacious scientist who really worked um, independently to successfully fertilize an egg outside the body. And she was working at the Free Hospital for Women in Boston. Um, And she actually was even credited on the paper. So she was like co-credited with John Rock, uh, which is very unusual. Um, She didn't have a PhD. So that's why she was called a technician, um, partially because it was nearly impossible to go to medical school as a woman in America at that time. Uh, And so she, she achieved something that was like wildly beyond what most women with her capabilities could have at the time. Yet she wasn't even remembered for that. Um, And part of the reason was she had a husband who kept losing his job. And right after she made this huge discovery, he lost his job at Harvard and they had to move and she had to leave her work with John Rock because it wasn't considered as important as her husband's job. Now, we only have about two minutes left. Is there something that you feel we should uh, address that we haven't yet? Oh, so many things. (laughs) Um, But to circle back, uh, we just talked about I mentioned my introduction to like sex ed and what women's bodies are for, um, which I don't think was very unusual. It was like um, being given a sex ed book and learning I would get my period and it would suck and I shouldn't get pregnant. Um, So I've just been thinking after writing this book that I would really like to find a way to create a form of sex ed that doesn't start from this place of fear and honestly like disgust that makes people Uh, feel like they know less about their bodies and like they're less in control of what's going to happen and instead starts from some of this really cool science and like this wonder at what your body's doing for you like just think of the ovaries like we were talking about Uh, if I got the message when I was younger that my ovaries were not just like housing potential babies if I wanted to get pregnant um, but were supporting my entire body and were these factories producing these incredibly powerful hormones um, and that my uterus was this uniquely regenerative organ that knows exactly how to reform its lining and shed it and grow it again every month without scarring. I just think I would have had a different relationship with my body during puberty. So I 
feel like we can do this so we can disrupt the way that sex ed is delivered to girls and people with vulvas and that's something i am thinking about well i appreciate your talking about it on our show today i've been speaking with award-winning science journalist rachel e gross about her book vagina obscura an anatomical voyage it's published by ww norton thank you so much for being such a great guest leonard thank you for your thoughtful questions this was great and that brings us to the end of our show my great thanks to my audio engineer reggie johnson and to keziah glow the executive producer of leonard lopate at large for all of the important work that they do throughout the week if you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And today's show will be rebroadcast on WBAI tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. If you miss any of it. Uh, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. We need to help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And an added incentive is that WBAI is launching phase two of our tower rent campaign. We need to raise our tower rent at the Empire State Building, which comes to around $17,000 a month. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Vagina Obscura and Anatomical Voyage by Rachel Gross. So why not make that call right now? 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thanks with a number of perks, including a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. And either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies entirely on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. But it also means that we constantly need help. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopez at Large, why not go online to give to WBAI or call 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial, that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Monday. Have a great weekend.